there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Two more books that you might find helpful at some point. One is called Loneliness, and not one, but several people have picked up this book and looked at the title and said, Loneliness, what's that book about? Subtitle is, It Can Be a Wilderness, It Can Be a Pathway to God. It's a book for all of us because I think what St. Augustine, Augustine said is true. Uh, o God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. We are all uh, in the human condition of, of loneliness, alienation of one form or another, sometimes more conscious and more painful than other times. But I think it's a book for everyone. It deals with various forms of loneliness. And a book on the guidance of God is one written a number of years ago. It's just come back into print after a few years out of print. It is my attempt to answer the question that I think is asked of me more than any other by students, how can I find the will of God? God's guidance, a slow and certain light. Well, I do enjoy being married to husband number three, Mr. Elliot III. And uh, as you can well imagine, life is never boring with a man like that. Uh, we were at a certain city here in the South one time, and I was doing a breakfast meeting, and Lars was there early, as usual, setting up the book table. And there was a little old lady setting up place cards for the speaker's table. And they were joking back and forth, as is Lars's wont. And um, so suddenly she looked at him and she said, by the way, what's your name? And he facetiously said, well, I'm an Elliot too. And she said, oh, are you the speaker's husband? And he said, yes. And she said, well, that's funny. I thought they told me he had a different name. <laughs> and he said, well, I, I really do. He said, you know, my name is Gren. But he said, you know, I am her third husband. And her face fell. And she said, oh my goodness, I've only got one place card. <laughs> and this lady was a no-nonsense type. And Lars said, well, he said, you know, I don't think you need to worry because the other two are dead. I don't believe they're going to show up this morning. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, then it'll be all right, won't it? <laughs> well, tonight we're going to think about the next thing. And that is a watchword of my life. It comes from an inscription, I understand, in an old English parsonage down by the sea somewhere. Do the next thing. My mother taught me this principle many years ago, and my daughter picked it up. I think I taught it to her. And when she was in the hospital, I think it was when number five was being born, that I had the privilege of staying at her home with numbers one, two, three, and four. <laughs> and that was a new experience for me because I'm the mother of only one child. And so I felt quite busy all day. <laughs> and she, bless her heart, my daughter, called me that evening to find out how I was making out. And I said, well, fine. Your, ch your children are really very sweet and they are very obedient. They did what I told them to do. But I was very busy and very tired by the end of the day. And I said, Val, I just keep thinking to myself, what do you do when I'm not here? And what are you going to do when you're bringing home a new baby? I mean, I'm flat out every minute all day long. How do you manage? And she laughed. She said, Mama, I do just what you told me. Do the next thing. 
She said, don't think about all that you have to do. Just do the next thing, one thing at a time, which, of course, is what I had tried to get across to her, and I guess the lesson had sunk in. But that really is the most simple but amazingly liberating maxim. Just do the next thing. And I have found it to be a great comfort and consolation in times of great distress. The second stanza of the hymn that I read last night, Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake, all now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know the voice of him who ruled them while he dwelt below. Very few things are our business. Very few. But something always is. There is no moment that God leaves without a requirement of some sort. He requires something of us at every moment of our lives, if not some clear and simple action, like sprinkling the clothes in order to make yourself get down to business with that ironing, or addressing three envelopes and stamping them so that you will actually sit down and write those three letters that you should have written six months ago, then if it's not one of those little things like that, then the greatest thing, it is the greatest thing that can be required of anyone, trust in the living God. In one of George MacDonald's novels, he has a dialogue between two men where one man is very puzzled about what he's supposed to do next, and his friend says, well, you just take whatever one step God is asking you to take. Whatever it is that God requires of you right now, do that thing, and then you will be given clear guidance. And the man says, but nothing is required of me right now. And his friend said, oh, but there is. The greatest thing that can be required of any man. Pray, what is that, says his friend. Trust in the living God. That is the one thing required at every moment. Well, let me give you three things under this heading, the next thing. Number one is ask God. Number two, accept your place. And number three, choose joy. Ask God, accept your place, and choose joy. Valerie called me one morning and said that that day she had such a long list of things that absolutely had to be done that day and almost all of them or at least five or four or five of them seemed to be top priority that she just didn't know she literally didn't know what was the next thing that she should do so down on her knees she went she said and just simply asked God very simple heartfelt prayer Lord show me what is the next thing, the most important thing for me to do right now? And that particular morning, it happened to be to help Jim with his reading. Jim was six or seven years old, one of the children that she's homeschooling, and so that was the first thing that she did. In order to ask God about the next thing, we need to be still. And even if it can only be five or ten seconds, as a young mother um, may be able to find no more than that. Just those five or ten seconds of stillness can be the revelation, the place in which God reveals to you what he wants you to do. Not impatiently banging on his door, but just a quiet, momentary lifting up of your heart to God in simplicity. Now, one of the most beautiful examples in scripture of this theme of waiting on God is the examples, the two examples of Anna and Simeon. 
they stand before us as types of fidelity, a faithfulness which is constant under strain, constant in long continuance without visible results. Think of Anna, that old widow, faithful in the temple. Spent, she spent day and night praying, worshiping. She was faithful to custom, to worship, and to service. And these were external and visible things in her life. In other words, she was there in the temple. She was doing these things daily. And she had less help in her understanding, far less help than we have when she was living among the shadows of the Old Testament, the old law. But she held on by faith to the promise don't you think that she must often have been very weary? We don't really know whether she had been there for 50 or for 80 years, something like that. But she held on, in spite of her weariness, to her faith and her hope. And they must have been tried to the uttermost. When was God going to fulfill this promise? But the Bible, the Bible says she departed not, but fasted, prayed, and served. A long obedience in the same direction. A long and patient waiting. Sure that the promise of God would come, it would not tarry. Though it tarry long, wait for it, says the scripture, for it will surely come and will not delay. And think of old Simeon. He wasn't uh, spending all his time in the temple, but he's an example to us of an inward faithfulness to grace and to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he came by the Spirit into the temple in answer to an inward call. What was it that led him into the temple just at that moment when that young poor couple came to present their little child? What else could it have been but the call of the Holy Spirit? How many years had old Simeon waited for that answer from God's Spirit? How many years had he lived in expectation, corresponding with grace, quiet waiting, trusting, listening for the invitation and the promise? He made no fuss. He said nothing, and suddenly, now, the long-expected meeting. And in one moment, all that waiting must have seemed like nothing. Simeon and Anna, two shining examples of what it means to, to wait on God. Now, when you and I have a question to ask God, it might be well if we would examine our motive for asking, especially when we're asking about things which may not be any of our business. Valerie's plea, Lord, show me which of these things I need to do first, were, was a question about things which she was fairly sure were definitely her business and things that really did need to get done that day. But there are often times when we are asking God questions about which we really have no guarantee that they are to be answered for us here and now. And I think we need to examine our attitude toward the truth of God. Is God's word, God's truth, something to be tinkered with? Or is it something to be submitted to? I am often dismayed when I have question and answer times, which I do love to have. I'm sorry that during this weekend there wasn't time for questions and answers, but it does bother me that so often the attitude of the questions, the attitude that seems to lie behind many of the questions that come to me, indicate a contentious spirit, an attitude of wanting to tinker with the Word of God, sort of... Uh, mess around with it in such a way that it will fit a little bit more neatly into what I would like to do 
rather than simply submitted to. And so often people are so sure that they know what it doesn't mean. Oh, but it doesn't mean this. And oh, surely God couldn't mean that. You know, give them a word like, uh, unless you are prepared to sell everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus said. You know, those are his words. Well, but surely he doesn't mean this. And surely he can't expect me to do that, etc., etc. My question is always, what does he mean? What does he say to me in this? How am I to obey this word? George MacDonald says, the love of thee will set all notions right. If we come at the scriptures with an attitude of love, not how little can I get away with, but how much can I give you, Lord? That will set all notions right. One of the most dangerous questions that I think we are all tempted to ask is how God is going to do a thing, how God is going to fulfill a promise. Now, God knows our attitudes. I'm not saying that anytime we wonder about that or ask God about it that we're necessarily wrong, but we need to be careful when we ask that sort of a question. For example, when we read Romans 8.28, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. I couldn't tell you how many letters I have received from people telling me their tragic story and then saying, now tell me how this fits into God's pattern for good. Well, how do I know? I don't know how, I only know that it fits into God's pattern for good. Because God has explained to us very clearly that it does. God has made that categorical statement. Everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Do you think that something has happened in your life which is an exception? Is this the first time in all of history that something has happened that doesn't fit into God's pattern for good? We do feel that way sometimes, don't we? Because we think, well, I don't see how in the world this could ever fit into any pattern for good. Well, it's not going to fit into your pattern. But remember, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. It should. God will do what he says he will do. And questions about how God is going to do such a thing very often spring from the passion for the fruit of knowledge, which is the sin that Adam and Eve committed, wasn't it? The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil had been forbidden. Why? Because God had not created the man and the woman to bear the kind of burden, the kind of weight that the knowledge of good and evil would lay upon them. They were not designed to bear that knowledge. And so God in his mercy, just like any loving father who tells a child not to play in the street, not to touch the hot stove, God in his mercy said, don't eat that. And of course, the enemy comes along and convinces Eve that God is cheating them of the one thing in the world that can make them really happy and that he can tell them how to upgrade their lifestyle. And so Eve buys that notion. A lust for the fruit of the tree of knowledge and not for the fruit of the tree of life. God said, if you eat that fruit, you will die. And Satan came along and said, is that what God said? That's not, that's not going to happen to you. You're not going to die. In fact, you can become gods, not just mere human beings. Who wants to be a mere human being if you can be a god? And so they chose to reject that which was given and to usurp that which was not given. And we've been in a mess ever since. We're all guilty at times of spiritual lust, aren't we? I must have this now. Material lust, I think we know about. We see things on TV and things in the catalog and things that our neighbors have that we've got to have now. But have you ever thought about the fact that it's possible to be spiritually lustful? 
I would like to be as spiritual as so-and-so. I would like to be a spiritual giant. I wish I could understand this mystery that J.I. Packer can expound so magnificently in his book. God didn't reveal to me what he revealed to J.I. Packer. He reveals to me what he has revealed to J.I. Packer, but he reveals it through J.I. Packer, not directly into my head. And you know, practically everything I have learned has come through people. God doesn't give me direct, private, hotline revelations. I don't get any handwriting on the wall or any um, voices or pillars of fire or anything like that. God teaches us through other people. He can teach us through a donkey if he needs to. So this attitude of demanding an answer from God instead of seeking him who is the answer can be a dangerous thing. So when you ask questions, are you asking for solutions or are you asking primarily for holiness? Which is more important to you? Solutions, escapes from your bad situation or holiness, which God wants to work in you in the midst of this situation. Now we must, in the second place, accept our place. There is a subtle form of spiritual pride when we imagine that a different set of parents, different genes, different background, different education, different set of gifts, different personality, would have enabled me to do a better job of serving the Lord. We have spiritual ambitions. We would like to do something admirable, something visible, uh, very often something public. I hear a great deal of talk nowadays in the churches about discerning your gifts. How many people are willing to settle for the gift of helps? That's one of the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament. Most of us would much rather have something that which, for which we will be thanked or admired. But you know, all the gifts that God has ever given to any of us are not meant for ourselves, they're meant for other people. If you have the gift of a beautiful voice, you might be ambitious to train that voice and to be able to sing solos publicly. And God does give a gift like that to many people, but for most of us, he wants us to use the quieter gifts, the less visible, the less obvious ones, the willingness simply to help, to pitch in and do the job that nobody else is willing to do. Whatever my place is, let me accept that place with joy, with thanksgiving, and fulfill the responsibilities that that place entails. Amy Carmichael was given a great gift of evangelism. And when she went to India for the first six or seven years, she traveled with a small band of Indian women, camping, traveling by bullock cart during the day, a very tiring, wearisome, grueling kind of itinerant evangelism, and one in which God gave her much visible fruit, relatively speaking, in a Hindu culture, not that there were ever crowds, but there were the ones and the twos here and there. And she was very grateful for that and thrilled to be called to be an itinerant evangelist. But it was in the course of those travels that she discovered that there was an underground and illegal traffic going on among uh, little baby girls that were being bought or given to the Hindu temples and raised for the purposes of prostitution to serve the male worshipers in Hindu temples. And these babies were very often the most beautiful ones. They were very often from rich families. They were not unwanted children at all. They were offered because they were beautiful and perhaps had uh, talent and genes in their background that would make them talented in dancing and learning poetry and singing and doing the various things that these temple prostitutes were trained to do. Amy was utterly appalled to discover the nature of this traffic and she began to pray that God would enable her to rescue some of these babies from this life of sin from which not one child had ever been known to escape. God answered her prayer, and she did become the mother of, over, the, over a period of years, probably 
well, easily hundreds of babies, if not thousands. God brought them to her, and she was able to establish a wonderful work in South India called the Donavor Fellowship, which is still operating. It wasn't very long after she got the first girl babies that she discovered that there was a similar traffic in boy babies who were used for homosexual purposes in connection with Hindu temple worship. And likewise, these little boys were trained to be prostitutes, male prostitutes, and never could escape. And so she began to pray that God would enable them to rescue some of these babies and that God would provide the men that they needed to take care of the boys' side of the work. And God answered that prayer. But think of this, from going around as an itinerant evangelist and seeing people who had never heard the gospel believe the gospel and become Christians, she went from that rewarding kind of work and the sort of work about which you can write prayer letters back home. She went to cutting, as she said, thousands of tiny toenails and fingernails and fixing baby bottles by the hundreds and walking the floor with sick or dying babies and washing diapers. Is that spiritual work? Yes, it is, of course. Spiritual work is the work done by a Christian in offering to Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any difference if it's digging ditches or cleaning out latrines or cutting teeny tiny little toenails. I happen to be what some people would call a Christian writer. That doesn't mean that I write necessarily only about Christian things. I am a writer who is a Christian. If you're a Christian plumber, that doesn't mean you deal with Christian drains. That means that you are a plumber who is a Christian. And so somebody who cuts toenails and makes formulas for babies is doing spiritual work. Never doubt that your pathway is a good one, chosen by God, the very best possible pass pathway. The very things that you might deprecate as hindrances and obstructions or fatal limitations, these have been given to you. And so it is the next thing that God wants you to do. Now, what has this got to do with waiting on God? It's putting aside those ambitions that may not have anything to do with God's desire for your life. It's simply spreading them before him and saying, Lord, you do what you want with these. You do what's right with these. You make any use or any disposal of these that you want to do. Some of you know that when I spent my first year as a missionary, I was working on the Colorado Indian language, and at the end of that year, all of the language materials that I had collected were stolen. So an entire year's work disappeared in the days where there were no Xeroxes and no uh, tape recorders, so we didn't have any copies of anything. For whom had I done that work? Well, of course, I had visions of being someday known as the apostle to the Colorado Indians and the translator of the Colorado Bible. You know, I could see these phrases in my mind, and uh, I could imagine doing the job in order to see Colorado Indians come to Christ. And I never saw any of that, and everything that I did just went up in smoke, as it were. I'm serious when I say that God does know what to do with what we offer to him. And Amy Carmichael wrote, God never wastes his servant's time. God never wastes his servant's talents. God never wastes his servant's money. Maybe you're one of those who gave money to a cause that you thought was a good one and turned out to be some sort of a scam. But you gave it to God, didn't you? So that's not lost. What have you given to God? If you accept your place, then you can give it back to God. You cannot give your work to God if you haven't accepted it in the first place. You have to receive it before you can offer it back. And you offer it back with thanksgiving. And so there is a continuous cycle I receive everything from God, 
I thank him for it, and I offer it back to him with thanksgiving. And he gives to me, and I give to him. And that is what is called by some the Eucharistic life, the life of thanksgiving and offering. There's a beautiful little story in a book called The Golden Windows, one of those 19th century books by Laura E. Richards. It's called The Prominent Man. While hurrying to business one morning, the prominent man slipped on a piece of ice, fell and broke his leg. It was to be a big day for him and his very natural outcry was, what will become of everything? He was taken to his home and there in his distress he was visited by the angel who attends to things. After inquiring about his state of health, the angel advised him not to worry. The truth is, said the angel, I put that piece of ice there myself. I wanted to get rid of you. <laughs> then the angel went on to explain that if the prominent man had attended the meeting that he expected to attend that day, a new man whose voice should have been heard would not have felt free to speak. And if he had given the lecture that he had intended to give later in the day on an important matter affecting large issues, he would have done harm. The angel assured him that when the crisis was over, it would be all right for him to deliver the lecture because then it would harm no one. Am I awake or is this a dream, cried the prominent man. More or less, said the angel, it is what you call life. But, 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 cried the man, this is terrible. You don't know anything about business. My dear soul, said the angel, what do you take me for? And he went away and told the nurse to give her patient a composing draft, which I guess in modern parlance would be a tranquilizer. Have you ever had that, that feeling when all of a sudden your plans go awry and you think, what's going, to be ha what's going to happen to everything? Truth is, you know, nobody's necessary anywhere. You're not going to be missed nearly as much as you think. And the point that the angel, of course, was making was that there were some much more important things at stake than this prominent man's getting to the lecture or to the board meeting. It wasn't very important that he should get there. In fact, it, should, it was very important that he not get there. The angel said, I wanted to get rid of you. So what was the next thing for that man? It wasn't the lecture after all. It wasn't the board meeting. It was to get the leg set and then to sit. That was the next thing. And trust in the living God. God is not taken by surprise. It was all a part of the pattern. Everything that happens. Of course, God doesn't often send the angel who attends to things to talk with us audibly. At least I've never met him, but wouldn't that be wonderful? He doesn't necessarily reveal the reasons to us. Seldom, I think, does he reveal the whys. Once in a while, he might tell us one little why, but not very often, because it isn't our business. Not very many things in life are our business. One thing, this one thing is needful. So let's think about this third one, choose joy. None of us is ever meant to be useless. A shining example of a person who could very well sink into uselessness but hasn't would be Johnny Erickson Tada. All of us know people who are severely handicapped, whom God has used in most remarkable ways. They can't do anything that you and I can do physically. And how often do you stop and try to put yourself in that person's position? I happened to be with Johnny at a conference, and I was in her motel room in the morning, just when the two girls that were taking care of her at that time, this was a number of years ago, were getting her ready for the meeting. And I saw the agonized um, detail of, of all this process that had to go on, the sorts of things that you and I do in, a, in three seconds or two minutes. It took hours. It took, them, it took these two girls two hours to get her up in the morning. 
I don't suppose it's changed very much. But she's not useless, and not one of us is ever meant to be useless. There isn't a day in our lives when we are prevented from doing the will of God. Not one day are we prevented from doing the will of God. There's only one thing that can prevent, can prevent me from doing the will of God. You know what that is? My will. Nobody else's. No circumstance, no lack of time, no suffering, nobody's opposition can ever prevent one of us from doing the will of God. It is only our own will that can refuse, and God will not invade our lives. I want to quote again from Viktor Frankl's book. The more I read of this, the more swept away I am with the spiritual uh, insights that this man has. He, as I mentioned, he hardly uses the word God at all, but every now and then he does. Here's one story. He says, it had been a bad day. On parade, an announcement had been made about the many actions that would from then on be regarded as sabotage and therefore punishable by immediate death by hanging. Among these were crimes such as cutting small strips from our old blankets in order to improvise ankle supports and very minor thefts. A few days previously, a semi-starved prisoner had broken into the potato store to steal a few pounds of potatoes. The theft had been discovered, and some prisoners had recognized the burglar. When the camp authorities heard about it, they ordered that the guilty man must be given up to them, or the whole camp would starve for a day. Naturally, the 2,500 men preferred to fast. On the evening of this day of fasting, we lay in our earthen huts in a very low mood. Very little was said, and every word sounded irritable. Then, to make matters even worse, the light went out. Tempers reached their lowest edge, their lowest ebb. And then he tells how the senior block warden was a wise man, and he tried to improvise a little talk that would cheer the men's spirits. And finally, he pointed to Viktor Frankl himself, who he knew was a psychologist, and asked him if he had a word of advice for these depressed men. He says, God knows I was not in the mood to give psychological explanations or to preach any sermons to offer my comrades a kind of medical care of their souls. I was cold and hungry, irritable and tired, but I had to make the effort and use this unique opportunity. And so he, he began to speak to them about the comforts that they could enjoy. And he reminded them that they were not in the worst situation that they could ever imagine. I asked each of us to ask himself what irreplaceable losses he had, we had suffered up until then. I speculated that for most of us, these losses had been really few. Whoever was still alive had reason for hope. Health, family, happiness, professional abilities, fortune, position in, authority, in society, all these were things that could be achieved again or restored, maybe someday. Then he went on to talk about the future, and he talked about the past, and all the reasons why they had for, for, that they had for Thanksgiving. Then he spoke about giving life meaning. They must not lose hope, but should keep their courage in the certainty that the hopelessness of our struggle did not detract from its dignity and its meaning. The hopelessness of our struggle did not detract from its dignity and its meaning. And finally, I spoke of our sacrifice, which had meaning in every case. It was in the nature of this sacrifice that it should appear to be pointless in the normal world, the world of material success. But in reality, our sacrifice did have a meaning. And of course, I thought of Paul's words in Romans 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, if you do that, the world is not going to be impressed, except perhaps with your stupidity 
Why bury yourself? Why do a job like that? Why go off to some foreign land when there's so much to do in your own backyard? You know all the kinds of things that will be said if you make any kind of smallest sacrifice that anybody happens to find out about. But we are to make our whole lives a living sacrifice. Waiting on God means this daily acceptance and presentation of my body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. As I wait on him, I am a waiter. I'm simply saying, Lord, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? Show me. What may I offer? And every day I can offer all that I am, all that I ha have, all that I do, and all that I suffer. Those are four deliberate, conscious offerings that I can make. You go into your kitchen and you can say, Lord, everything that I'm going to do here, let it be an offering to you. And in Ruth Graham's kitchen, there's a sign that says divine service is conducted here three times daily. <laughs> That's what it is, isn't it? We are never meant to be useless. Every day, we can do God's will. Nobody can deprive us, Frankel says, of the freedom, of that last freedom, the freedom to choose my attitude. The freedom to choose my attitude. So think of the worst, most unendurable kind of situation that you personally have ever experienced. Put your experience in place of the words concentration camp and think, is there some way in which I could change my attitude toward that thing? Maybe some of you right now are facing what seems to you to be the most unendurable situation. And your temptation is to flee, isn't it? And for any man in the concentration camp, that was no option. The barbed wire was there. There was no way. He had no choice to flee. The only choice that he had was to choose his attitude. How do we do that? Well, you and I know the answer, that we can do it in the strength of the Lord. We do it for him. We are meant to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Where do I learn the context? What, in what context do I learn those things? You know the story of the lady that went to the preacher and asked him to pray that the Lord would give her patience. And so he put his hand on her shoulder and he said, Oh Lord, send this dear sister tribulations. And she said, Wait, that's not what I asked for. He said, But that's the only way you can get patience. That's what the Bible says. Tribulation worketh patience. How am I going to learn gentleness? I'm not born gentle. My first husband, Jim Elliott, said I had a sledgehammer personality. <laughs> My second husband said, you don't call a spade a spade, you call it a bloody shovel. <laughs> I won't quote what Lars has said about me. <laughs> it doesn't come naturally for me to be gentle, so where do I learn that? In the context in which I am tempted not to be gentle. Where shall I learn joy in the context in which I am tempted to be miserable. I sat next to a lady at a luncheon one time and she told me that when she and her husband were first married within that very first year, they discovered that he had some sort of a degenerative d disease which was incurable but which would eventually kill him, but it would be a long time and it would be a gradual downhill slide. And she said, we went home that day and we looked at each other and we talked about what we were going to do and she said, we knew we only had two choices. We would either be miserable or we would be joyful. And she said, we decided to be happy. And God gave us 25 wonderful years together before he died. We're never meant to be useless. 
We can do the next thing. What was the next thing when the doctor gave them that word? And I will never forget one of those uh, public television specials on dying people. And it was, I think, a six-week uh, series tracing the actual experience of people who were dying. And one was an old black man. And they showed the scene where he and his daughter, I think it was, I think it was his daughter, I'm not sure, might have been his wife, went to the doctor. And it was at that point where the doctor explained that there was nothing more that they could do, that the cancer had gotten beyond surgery and treatment of any sort. And there was just the quietest, serenest look on the old man's face. And he looked at the doctor, and he looked at his daughter, and he said, we're going to go right on. We're just going to go right on. And she said, sure we are. In the strength of the Lord, the next thing. We can increase in the knowledge of God. We can pray. We can work here and now. The Lord gives us work to do. In my times of most extreme sorrow, when my husband, my second husband, was dying of cancer, I felt at times that I couldn't make it through the day even to take care of myself. I felt as if I was so miserable and so at the end of my rope and so and suffering so horribly vicariously with my husband's suffering that I could hardly get myself out of bed, let alone get breakfast, let alone go and do all the things that I needed to do for my husband who was at home at that time. And I realized that God in his mercy had given me work that had to be done, just plain ordinary work, like laundry and cooking and cleaning and giving my husband a bed bath and feeding him and taking care of him in, in every way. This was my salvation. The next thing, just do the next thing. When you want to just sink down in a pile and think, what next? and do absolutely nothing, and be hovered over, and surrounded, and propped up by all your friends. And isn't there a lust for sympathy? When everybody else needs to be propped up, why should they be propping me up? I have work to do. God has given me work to do. And have you ever noticed that little part in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is told by God, I am going to take away at a stroke the light of your life. And Ezekiel says, in the evening, my wife died. And in the morning, I did as I was commanded. Isn't that tremendous? In the evening, my wife died. And in the morning, I did as I was commanded. He gives us work, a task, something to do, some way to glorify him, to please him. And my work here and now is exactly the place of service for God. This is what it means to wait on God. Do what he's given me to do. Be his waiter. That's what I'm here for. Lord, can I serve you? Show me. Are you looking for the big chance, for something important to do? This is it. In God's book, this is the big chance. I have a tiny little card taped onto the mirror of my guest room bathroom, and it says, nothing is little if God asks it. And recently, my 10-year-old granddaughter was a guest in our house, and I had no idea whether she had noticed that tiny little card or not. And after she got home, she wrote me a letter. And down underneath her signature, she had written, nothing is little if God asks it. That little girl is growing in grace. Does it look tiny? There is no great with thee, there is no small, for thou art all, and fillest all in all, says Amy Carmichael. I met an ex-missionary who was very bitter and very angry. 
She had been on the field for 15 years. She had X number of degrees. She had quite an interesting uh, dossier, resume. And she was back in the States, and she had joined a church, and she had offered her services to the minister in any way in which she could serve. She said to me, Elizabeth, guess what he asked me to do? He wanted me to take care of the nursery. I have three degrees. I've been a missionary for 15 years. I have all this experience, and he wants me to take care of the nursery. When I said I didn't think I could do that, you know what he asked me to do? He wanted me to bake the communion bread. And she expected me to sympathize. I wondered what kind of a missionary she was. I thought of Amy Carmichael cutting those little toenails. Amy Carmichael said there is no calculating the value of a missionary who will do anything that needs to be done without asking any questions about it, without standing on his dignity, without saying, that's not my job, that's not what I came to the mission field to do. I came here to win souls. You're not going to win souls if you don't cut those toenails. And Jesus got down on his knees and washed feet. The dirtiest job of the lowest slave in an Eastern household. And he said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you, in your turn, must wash one another's feet. Nobody's going to give you any medals for that. But there will be the day when you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Horace Bushnell wrote, bring down your soul, or rather, bring it up to receive God's will and do his work in your lot, in your sphere, under your cloud of obscurity, against your temptations, and then you shall find that your condition is never opposed to your good, but really consistent with it. And in 4, 1 Peter 4.19, he exhorts us to suffer, to commit ourselves to God, and continu to continue to do good. Do the next thing. Ask God what it is. Accept the place where he has put you. And choose joy. He will give you joy in that place of service. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.